questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Where do we come from? What are the origins of modern civilization? With the world's pyramids, the Nazca Lines, Easter Island statues, and other enigmatic structures, archaeological wonders, and geographic anomalies contain evidence of ancient gods? Tonight, we take an in-depth look at the facts, fictions, and controversies of our ancestors, origins, who we are as a people, and who might have come before us. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and to listen to tonight's full interview, subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Our special guest is the author of many books. His most recent one is titled Ancient Gods, Lost Histories, Hidden Truths, and the Conspiracy of Silence. His name is Jim Willis. Jim has a master's degree in theology from Andover and Newton Theological School. Jim has been an ordained minister for over 40 years and has also taught college courses in comparative religion and cross-cultural studies. His background in theology and education led to his writings on religion, the apocalypse, cross-cultural spirituality, and the mysteries of the unknown. And we have more on Jim Willis on our website. Jim joins us directly from, I don't know his location, but he'll tell us. Hello, Jim, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Thank you, Mel. Coming at you from South Carolina. Beautiful South Carolina. Excellent. Well, Jim. Beautiful and humid tonight. Wow. What's your temperature over there? Oh, it's about 92 and very humid right now. Well, I bet you you can't beat the 122 I saw in my vehicle this morning, even though people say Arizona is a dry heat, but you can fry an egg on the pavement. (laughs) My wife and I lived in uh, Nogales for uh, about a year and a half while we were researching uh, our book uh, Armageddon Now. I'm very familiar with Nogales. Yes, we lived there for about a year and a half and loved it. Fantastic country. Great people. Excellent. Well, Jim, at the beginning of your book, you write about something I ponder for decades. You mention how life can change suddenly at any moment. And you talk about the face-off between President John F. Kennedy and Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Fortunately, cool heads prevailed, but there's the part I've always wondered. What if we have cultural amnesia and something like this happened before a comet asteroid or even nuclear explosions and our civilization had to restart over and over again and we just don't remember it and instead of what we call the the beginning of civilization in mesopotamia sumer or or egypt was actually a re-beginning a restart yes what are your thoughts on this i uh, that that's my thought exactly um and i think there's two great lines of evidence to prove that what we call the beginning is really a re-beginning. Two great lines of evidence. One of them is in those significant stone structures. Um, We know pretty much when they were built, but how they were built, we have not the faintest idea. There was obviously some kind of a technology involved. Um, It had to be. And they're all over the world, and yet where did that technology come from? People say there's no evidence of it. I think the evidence is everywhere in the stone monoliths themselves and the stone megaliths. So the first um, line of of uh, proof that people are looking for, I think, is right before us. We just have to look at it and look at it honestly and say, they knew something that we don't. Where did they learn it from? 
The second line of proof, I think, is just as important, and that's the uh, the mythology that comes down to us from around the world. There is a universal mythology that talks about uh, an Eden or a time before the flood or uh, in the Hopi um, culture, the first four worlds, the first three worlds. Uh, we're in the fourth now. Uh, and you find this mythology all over the place. Why was it that people came up with this kind of universal mythology unless somewhere down below, down back of it all, we find a, uh, a, a, a common denominator, and that's that we were here before. We did live here before. Uh, there, there were ancestors to modern humans. And so I think when you put the two together, the, uh, the megaliths, which talk of an ancient technology that we don't understand, and the mythology that talks of an ancient world that uh, is universal in scope, I think the evidence is fairly sure that we are not the first. Uh, there were other civilizations before us. I was extremely excited um, to find out over the last year the number of um, discoveries that have been made that keep pushing back uh, modern humans way back. It used to be thought, you know, 40,000 years was where we uh, received our, our our first idea of uh, symbolic thinking or religious thinking. But now we're being pushed back. This latest uh, discovery about the uh, descendants of the um, antecedents of, of Neanderthal and uh, Donna Saban, it's just amazing to me how much time there is in human history to, to drop some of these previous cultures into the gap. Uh, I think the only thing keeping us from really going into it is our own prejudice. And uh, I think that's even starting to deteriorate. I think people are starting to become more open-minded about it now. I would say more than prejudice, perhaps arrogance, to say that those uh, soulless yeah. savages had no way of having been able to achieve all these, you know, megalithic structures they left behind almost as, as if they were saying, hey, we were here. But, you know, it's not that far-fetched to think that if this were to happen, you know, now, you know, mm-hmm. call, call it fill in the blanks, cataclysm, flood, whatever, and we lose those who remember, we would be forced to start all over again, reinventing everything. Well, and that's frankly my fear. Um, and let me read you a quote from uh, Edward Gibbon, uh, who wrote, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire back in 1783. Now, we're talking about a, a brilliant historian, but we're also talking about 1783, quite a long time ago. And he listed five reasons for the demise of the Roman Empire. Number one, uh, he said sports and entertainment received more and more money while the plight of the poor was neglected. Number two, Money went to the military rather than to public works. Number three, violence became more accepted and prevalent. Number four, people's faith in government was undermined, and justly so. And number five, religious roots fragmented and became a cause for dissension rather than unity. Uh, it sounds to me when I read that as if I'm looking at the morning paper. And what scares me is in that kind of an environment, we can be faced with some uh, people who are very short-sighted. 
And these short-sighted people are handling technologies that the world has never seen. And I think it could be very possible that if we don't make some changes and if we don't grow up uh, spiritually, uh, emotionally, culturally, uh, we could be very easily looking at another uh, end of another culture from whom there would probably be survivors who would begin another culture after a great nuclear holocaust, perhaps nuclear winter, perhaps ecological disaster, or, yes, uh, possibly uh, uh, something from outer space, a, a segmented comet like the one that hit the world about 12,800 years ago and uh, possibly 11,600 years ago. And when you put all this together, I just see the same thing happening. It seems in Yogi Berra's words, deja vu all over again. Well, George Santayana said it best, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And if this has happened in the past, yeah. we seem not to learn. What you just read seems, as you said, we read it in the morning paper. But, you know, at least the ancient ones carved a lot of their knowledge in stone. What yes. do we have today? Paper, silicon chips, a, a hard, hard drive that you know yeah. that wouldn't survive uh, the Never. test of time what what would we need to preserve the knowledge or the wisdom exactly i think in a hundred years in the time of our grandchildren's grandchildren say um people if if our electric grid went down if uh we um lost the memory of what a computer was or how to operate it uh someday 100 200 years from now and that's not a very long time somebody could find a a laptop and uh think that it <laughs> will if it's if they're typical archaeologists they probably say oh it was a uh, an item of worship or <laughs> some right. such thing no one would know how to use it or what it was and that's where our wisdom is stored yeah i always wondered if you have a parachute that drops an iphone or a laptop in the middle of a of the amazon in a, an unexplored yes. area what would the natives there do with it I, I I loved that old movie that came out. It was back in the 70s. The gods must be crazy. Yeah. Uh, a Coke bottle, and it disrupts a whole culture. <laughs> now, Jim, have you found historical oddities that offer you know, very real and tangible evidence of past cataclysms? Yes. Yeah, I have. And I, I have to look no further than the Bible, to tell you the honest truth. Um, I've I've gone through the whole religious gamut from... Uh, I was, when I was converted to Christianity, I was a, a fundamentalist, and I've gone through um, fundamentalism, I've gone through evangelicalism, um, I've been a charismatic, I've been, a, as they say, sometimes a flaming liberal, I've been a moderate, I've been mainstream, and as a result, I have uh, taught the Bible over the last 40 years in from a lot of different perspectives. And I'm still amazed when I go back and read this Bible that has been part of so much of my life right now, how much I missed that seems so obvious. If you take away the layers and layers of dogmatic theology and, uh, uh, and, and dogma that has covered some of these stories, and when you just read them, if you were to look at them and say, this is just a fragment of a text that has come down to us, uh, where did it come from? We would be amazed, but because it's in the Holy Bible, and we're taught to interpret that in a certain way in our culture, um, it just passes right over our head. I think, uh, for instance, of that uh, great passage in Ezekiel, the passage that everybody brings up when Ezekiel saw the wheels within the wheels. 
if you read that passage with an open mind, there's no question that he's seeing something real. Nobody can make that up. Uh, he's seeing something and trying to describe it in uh, the vocabulary of his day. I think he did a very good job of describing it if we could just simply let the words speak for themselves instead of trying to give it some kind of a theological overturn. Um, I look back at the flood and the whole idea of the culture that existed before the flood. And uh, in the flood story in the Bible was used either, if, if you're a literalist, uh, you tend to say that it happened 6,000 years ago, and then you give it the theological overturns, overpinnings. But if you just look at it um, and then compare it to other cultures' flood stories and other cultures' ideas, you get this idea that something happened that people remembered, and hundreds, in some cases thousands of years later, wrote it down. And I don't think there can be any question that uh, these things happen. And, and if you can find it right in the Bible, the revered book of Christianity and Judaism, and uh, even uh, in, to a certain extent Islam in our culture, if you look at it and can find it in there, uh, then you realize that the answers to the questions are hiding in plain sight. They're right there in every home, in, the, in terms of the best-selling book that there's ever been. The answer is right there in plain sight, if we only open our minds and read it and try to say maybe this is something other than we have been taught through a culturalized religion. Now, a lot of what we're going to be discussing tonight relates to cultural amnesia, but I think most of it is also a conspiracy of silence. But, but going yes. back to cultural amnesia for a moment, you say, quote, if our species is capable of developing cultural amnesia over the course of just a few hundred uh, years, what mm -hmm. about a few thousand? What about 10,000 or 50,000? Unquote. But what if the amnesia was orchestrated, Jim, in order to keep new generations in the dark? For example, and I don't mean to deviate, but you may have heard there's an effort to make uh, every book available digitally in order to reduce the use of our paper, the cutting trees, etc. Imagine what the cultural editors can do about our history. What if something oh. included in any of Jim Willis's books may become a threat to the establishment in the future. Very easy. Edit the digital book and no one will know the future. It's frightening, isn't it? It's frightening. Isn't or actually, it? the um, past, rather. Yes. Even even uh, in, in terms of our the, the, the digital um, imprint on our lives right now, how much um, people know about us and uh, how much, how easy it is to completely destroy someone or eliminate someone. Uh, in terms of just making sure that nobody ever hears about it. Uh, how easy it is to do that nowadays. Um, and it's, it's, it's a frightening thought. It really is a frightening thought. I, uh, you look at news programs. I mean, nowadays with the news being what it is, I like to look at a lot of different stations, and I'm amazed at what different stations leave out. Uh, if I was to listen to only one station, I would hear only one Opinion, and I would have no idea that something else is going out. And I'm saying this as a, as a uh, correction, not only to the uh, conservative side, but also to the liberal side. Uh, it's a frightening thing, because what we are doing is taking our knowledge and condensing it down to sound bites. And what we are doing, whether we mean to do it or not, I don't know if I'm a conspiracy theorist on this, whether we mean to do it or not, we are shrinking the human attention span. 
and uh, people are not digging in as they used to. When the Lincoln-Douglas debates went on, it was entertainment to go in in the afternoon and to listen to two presidential candidates debate for three hours and then grab a picnic lunch and then go back and listen to them debate for three hours more afterwards. Can you imagine that happening today? No. Absolutely I can't not. either. I remember yeah. in the 70s, you know, when I used to sit down with my, my father after he came home from work and watch the 6 o'clock news, the person would actually read, the journalists would go out there and create the news, and mm-hmm. it was not this... 30-second snippets right now that mm-hmm. if it's more than 30 seconds, oh, let me change the channel. As you yeah. said, that the attention span being reduced, I think this is orchestrated to basically keep people in a state of, uh, I, don't even, I don't even know how to label it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when, when you say it, you think it's orchestrated. Uh, at, at one time, not too long ago, uh, that would have been a foreign, comp, uh, foreign idea to me, and I probably... Uh, would have said, "Oh, come on, Mel. Let's yes, get serious. People get your tinfoil right. hat out." Yeah. Uh, now I'm not so sure because there are uh, there are things that are coming out that uh, that we didn't know anything about. You have to really dig to find them. When you find them, you begin to say, "Wait a minute, why?" And they say, "Well, because this would be too dangerous in the hands of the public." What? Too dangerous in the hands of the public? I think the danger lies in keeping it out of the hands of the public, and that seems to be exactly what people are doing today. What if there were events in our past, distant and and not so distant, that are being hidden from us? What if they had different types of renewable energy? What if they conquered disease? That information would jeopardize the current paradigm. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we would would be facing a, a, a... totally different kind of world, and the people in power uh, would lose their jobs. And I think that's what we're really seeing, is a, a, a real power grab. Uh, information is power. And so if you hold information, and you know it, and the other person doesn't know it, let's call it what it is. It's a power grab. And that's, that's frightening to me. Gives a new meaning to the information age. Yes. Now, let's talk about the creation of ancient gods and, and heroes of old. Please explain how the accomplishments of uh, Jesus, the Buddha, Confucius, uh, even Quetzalcoatl, uh, you know, grew with a telling, for example, Jesus of Nazareth, for, for instance, the, the early text don't mention anything about a virgin birth or raising no. the dead. All that came years later. He wasn't declared to be equal with God until the Council of Nicaea, more than 300 no. years after his birth. Tell us more. In the fourth century, <laughs> uh, the things that we just assume we know about Jesus, we don't know if we carefully read the text. The problem is, of course, that most people don't carefully read the text. They just receive it as it's given to him. And I well know, as a pastor, the pressure that is on a pastor to simply um, don't rock the boat. Uh, don't come up with any ideas like this, but you might be, it might be frightening. If there, there were times uh, long ago, when I was almost afraid to uh, to mention about the, the fact that the Christmas account, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, which contains the story of the wise men, and the Christmas account in the Gospel of Luke, which uh, contains the story of the shepherds, uh, if I brought up the fact that they really disagreed with each other in many ways, I could have been hounded out of my church. 
uh, in the same way, I mean, everybody thinks, well, I know what the Christmas story is because I've seen it acted out by many Sunday schools with uh, three boys in bathroom, bathrobes pretending they're the wise men and the, and the, always the blonde-haired little cute girl who's Mary or Gabriel or something like that. Um, I always used to get a kick out of that, too. Gabriel always was this cute little girl with blonde hair and a halo, and I couldn't understand how a, a girl got to replace Gabriel, who's always pictured in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in the Quran, he appears in all three. He's always pictured as a a male angel. <laughs> but I don't know, I never could understand that, but that's beside the point. So when you start to bring up these ideas about uh, who was Jesus of Nazareth and start to say that perhaps he was not the the uh, the kind of person that we are given that becomes a very frightening thing to people. I've even had uh, older ministers, I was a young minister when this was going on, and I've had older clergy kind of smile at me and say, yeah, well, it doesn't hurt the people, so don't bring up any of the stuff you learned in seminary. <laughs> don't bring up the problems. All that does is confuse people. Um, quite frankly, that happens uh, with the story of the flood of Noah. The clergy knew about the Sumerian account of... The uh, Epic of Gilgamesh? Yeah, the Epic of Gilgamesh, they knew it, but of course it wasn't on the internet yet. But they didn't want to bring it up, because if they were bringing, bringing up the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, written hundreds of years before uh, the the story of, of Noah was, was written down in the Bible, and yet it's so similar in so many ways, but if they brought that up, then the people in the pews would start saying, oh, there's... Um, you know, if if you can't trust Noah, what else can't you trust? Maybe you can't trust the resurrection. Maybe you can't trust the virgin birth. Maybe you can't trust. So just don't bring it up. And that's where the conspiracy of silence rears its ugly head. People know it. They just don't bring it up because they don't want to rock the boat. And they're afraid of their own reputations. The way they change, for example, you know, now, as you know, in, 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 in Roman Catholic Church, does not allow the priest to get married when they used to, because they're mm -hmm. saying we just want to make it uh, the same image as, as Jesus. But some mm -hmm. accounts say that Jesus actually married Mary Magdalene, and they had children, and they spread out. Yep. Yep. So yep. which one is yep. true? Well, there's the other thing. Uh, we have four Gospels, that, and, and we claim this. these are the four Gospels that tell the story. And uh, again, most people in the pews are simply not told that those were the four Gospels that made the final cut because they agreed with a preconceived idea. There were many more Gospels that told completely different stories. And f frankly, we wouldn't even know about some of them if they hadn't been hidden by uh, faithful, well-meaning uh, clergy way back in the time of Egypt, we would never know about the, um, the, the Gnostic Gospels, for instance. Uh, we just happened to find them in 1946, I think it was. No, that was the, no, it was, it was after that, 1950s, wasn't it? 1946 was the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, yeah. Yeah. And so when you put it, when you put it all together like that, um, how did those four Gospels happen to make the cut? Uh, I've often said, especially in terms of the Old Testament, um, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, those Scriptures were put together uh, in the form that we have them uh, a long time after the birth of the Christian Church. Uh, and they met, uh, a, a group of rabbis met in the town of Jamnia, 
and uh, they spent years going over the scriptures and deciding which ones were were regular and could be could be included and which ones weren't. I've often said that when it comes to Old Testament scholarship, if I could have my druthers of going back to whenever I want, I'd love to go back to Jamnia and look in the wastebaskets and find <laughs> out what didn't make it. I really would. Now, how and why have we developed so much cultural amnesia? <sighs> Boy, a lot of it, I think, is um, has to be attributed to uh, petty things like um, power structure and uh, um, you know people afraid of rocking the boat. But I think an awful lot of it, quite frankly, has to do with our cultural dependence. Um, on the whole science versus religion thing. It's been huge over the last few hundred years. I think we've developed such um, a, a left-brain approach to religion. It became systematic. Uh, it became a thing to study about. Um, the whole idea of God became something to learn about rather than to uh, study uh, in, in, in terms of what's really out there in terms of spirituality. And we move farther and farther into our left brains and farther and farther away from our right brains. And uh, now we have a, a a group of people who just, their normal reflex action, their knee-jerk reaction, is when you hear something different, you're against it. Uh, if you see something, uh, if, 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 if you hear a, a great truth being spoken, it's easier just to say, yeah, right. You know, uh, I'm amazed at the people, that, some of the reviews that I've read of my books, uh, I I find them humorous now. They used to bother me, but I find them humorous now um, when people would would simply criticize something that I had to say, not knowing anything about it, but just because it was different. Say, yeah, right, or really, and that was their whole. Review. But, but what what changed, Jim? Because it seems that this is almost like a new thing. Before we used to argue with with ideas. Now yeah, people yeah. just attack your character. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's, it's, a well, I have a hopeful theory and I'm not sure that there's any evidence to back it up, but I'm going to stick to my guns anyway. <laughs> I have, uh, long been growing in the conviction that the human race is standing at a crossroads right now. Uh, when you talk about the possibilities of us ending our own civilization, yeah, that's that's very real. There are a lot of different ways we could do that. When Barb and I wrote Armageddon Now, uh, we like to call it 500 pages of light reading on all the different ways the world could end. Um, when we wrote that book, we just became immersed in all of these um, ideas of different ways that we could that we could really destroy ourselves. And I think people are afraid of that. I think, although we may not want to admit it, and we may want to, we may want to look at it and uh, and look up, you know, paint it a pretty picture. Uh, I think people down deep inside are afraid, and so I think they're beginning to uh, say what might happen, and and how do we keep this from happening? And one way to keep it from happening is to go back to the mythical old days. In our country, it's the fifties, when everything seemed rosy. Um, there was no race problem in the 50s because nobody paid any attention to it. That is, if you were white, there was no problem with uh, with uh, women holding office in the 50s because nobody mentioned it. If you were a man, uh, the government was uh, run by people that we knew we could trust um, until 
people like Nixon came along and began to wonder that, oh, maybe there's something wrong. And so this whole conservative idea of let's go back to what was and somehow make it like it was when I re the way I remember it when I was a kid growing up, I think that became one um, a, a, a balloon, so to speak, that started to blow up bigger and bigger and bigger. And here's that theory I was talking about. I have the idea that we are living in the last days of that balloon. I'm hoping that that balloon will pop. It's just like a sun getting larger and larger and hotter and hotter before it explodes in on itself and shrinks in on itself. And uh, I'm hoping that this can happen. I don't think it can be a gentle happening, but I'm hoping it can happen as gently as possible so that we can see it for what it is and say that uh, this decade of the 21st century was the decade when we realized we had to move forward rather than backward, when we had to open our minds and our hearts to uh, a whole new kind of possibility for humans. And the thing that gives me hope in that is that a lot of the uh, ideas that are coming out of quantum physics right now, for instance, a lot of the ideas that are starting to percolate down into the minds of people seem to be using scientific language to describe spiritual principles which the ancient Hindus, for instance, had discovered five, six thousand years ago. And the Rishis were talking about things that uh, theoretical physicists are talking about now. They talked about it in terms of metaphor. The theoretical physicists are talking in terms of mathematics. But those two lanes of, of, of traffic which have been going down that road, I sense somehow are beginning to merge into one big lane of traffic. It may not happen in my lifetime. I hope it does. But if that happens and we can begin to look at the scientific underpinning for spiritual truth that had been known for thousands of years, perhaps we can come out the other side with a brand new kind of human. I'm hoping that. I'm really hoping that. So if we go through a new cataclysm, let's say, and some of us survive, we'll be able to tell children that before the cataclysm, we had cars, airplanes, yep. cell phones, TVs, you name it. But if those with the expertise perished, we wouldn't be able to replicate them. We could only talk about what they accomplished. Exactly. And hopefully someday someone would rediscover all of this hundreds, if not thousands of years in the future. Yes. Yeah. Thousands of years in the future. Hundreds of years, I hope. But who knows? My hope is that maybe we can get out of it without the big cataclysm. Um, technology can be a wonderful thing. It's how we use it. Um, but with human beings the way they are right now and the, the, the power-driven, egocentric, uh, controlling impetus of human beings allowed to rise to the surface, uh, well, they use technology exactly the wrong way. We, we saw an example of it, I think, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, when I read, for instance, about um, our voting records, wanting to, uh, the federal government requesting our voting records, things about us, uh, including the last four digits of our Social Security number and whether we're married or not and all this kind of thing. Um, I know that information, a lot of it is already out there in the hands of the federal government, but... It just seems to be going in the wrong direction to put it more out there. You know what I mean? Uh, so I, I worry about things like this, but 
I, I still try to remain hopeful that somehow our best nature, our spiritual nature, the nature that strives to be more, the nature that says, um, who are we? Let's discover it together. Where are we going? The possibilities. Uh, I hear passion sometimes coming from uh, spiritual folks, but I hear passion also coming from the voices of theoretical physicists who are looking at uh, brand new ways of understanding who we are in terms of parallel dimension and dark matter and uh, the idea of M-theory and what's possible out there. If that passion can rise to the surface and we can lift our eyes off the mud and the mire and the mud puddles we're in down here and lift them up to the skies and say, what's possible? If, there, if we can reach a critical mass with that kind of thinking, maybe there's yet hope. I'm optimistic like you, but I'm also a realist. And if I look at yeah. the past, I want to really study it so that I don't make the same mistakes. The problem is a lot of our past or his hyphen story has been yeah. taken away from us. But Jim, I can understand how technological achievements would essentially be wiped out. But wouldn't mm-hmm. we be able to leave a story of what happened to future generations so they're better prepared to say whether a future cataclysm if that's the case either the ancient ones didn't do a good job leaving records behind we haven't been able to find the answers because they're buried under sand or sea or and that's a big or some know and are always keeping us blind because if we get too smart or too evolved it's time to shut us down once again so we can restart just like a great depression is orchestrated when the market is really high yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really wondering about that. Uh, the, the, the previous generations, when when we say they didn't, they didn't leave uh, a record. I'm not sure that that they didn't. Um, I look at the 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 geography, for instance, or the the uh, archaeology um, of of the Sphinx and that whole Giza complex. Um, I'm not sure there aren't messages built in there that we just haven't opened our minds to. I look at Gobekli Tepe. Uh, why was it buried deliberately? Um, what messages does it have if we can only study them with an open mind? And that's the problem. Most of the Egyptologists that, uh, that I talk to don't want to study things with an open mind. When I was a, when I was a kid, uh, in, in Sunday school, uh, I would be told these Old Testament stories and I was always the kid who got in trouble. Um, I would always want to say if, I, I was the one who always brought up if, Cain and Abel were the first two kids, and there were only two brothers in the world. One killed the other, and then the other one went out. Was Cain killed his brother and then went out and built a city. Where did all the people come from to build the city? And my teacher would say politely something like, uh, sit down and shut up. Or if uh, I want to know about the Noah's Flood and uh, that wonderful, mysterious passage that says there were giants in those days, you know, yeah. and I, I ask about that. And the teacher would say very politely, she'd consider it, and then she'd say, uh, sit down and shut up. <laughs> well, I went. You sound like I when was I over, was growing up. Yeah, <laughs> I was over in, uh, I, in, in Egypt, my, my first visit to the pyramids. And um, I, I walked into the underneath the Great Pyramid for the first time, and the guide who was taking us down there was walking beside him. And uh, yeah, I was looking at the miles and miles of cables that uh, put all the lights so you could see. And I saw the lights, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. How did they build yeah. these things with, with the lights? I mean, what, what did they use? And the guy said, uh, of course, the people around me were saying, yeah, 
I don't see any smoke on the ceiling. I don't see any soot on the ceiling. What did they use? And the guy said something like uh, the Egyptian equivalent of um, sit down and shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I think he said something that he finally came out. Well, they must have had a light source. Um, Well, that's a pretty phenomenal statement. They must have had a light source. What kind of light source? What, What was it like? Those are the kind of questions we ought to be asking. And instead, we're pushing them under the rug. Uh, it's, it's just a shame. So I'm not sure that we shouldn't go back and rethink all of these ancient uh, places, from the Egyptian, um, uh, the placement of the Egyptian pyramids and the Sphinx to Gobekli Tepe, and uh, especially some of the obvious um, uh astrological uh, pyramids that are around the world and the other buildings that are around the world that point to the skies. And I think we should be asking those kinds of questions. What were they trying? Did they leave a record? But we're just not smart enough to see it. Just like if we left our laptops, we would have left a record, but people wouldn't be smart enough to read it. So I'm not sure the, the, the fault lies in them as much as it lies in us. I, I really think that... If you go through a cataclysm, and if you're human, you have to ask yourself the question afterwards, if you're one of the survivors, you have to ask yourself the question, why did it happen? And then you become to develop um, uh, spiritual reasons. Perhaps somehow if you're religious, you say we displease the gods. Or uh, perhaps human hubris. Uh, Nature does not intend human hubris. Uh, or however else you want to put it. And you come up with ideas. You come up with things. Why did this happen? So you begin to tell stories, especially when your kids say, why did this happen? You begin to tell stories to your kids. And that, I think, is the birth of mythology. Well said. You know, I think of the iScore records that we could actually, could we be able to predict, if you look at an iScore record and see that, something repeats every few thousand years. And as we approach, we can go back in time and see more or less what happened and how to not prevent it, because if it has happened so many times and it's something beyond our control, but at least how to weather it better. But, you know, some Mm -hmm. say if your house was on fire, you wouldn't be focusing on saving your photo albums. You would focus on survival. Could this be the case? The cataclysms happened all of a sudden and the ancient ones didn't expect it and all they could do was fight for survival. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, let's let's jump in with both feet. Let's talk about Atlantis, for instance, the Atlantis story. Uh, what if uh, there was a um, the Atlantis story is 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 a true story, and the Atlant- there was an Atlantis that existed either in the Caribbean, as Andrew Collins has been saying lately, or uh, perhaps in uh, in in Greenland. I mean, I mean in uh, Antarctica, uh, as Graham Hancock speculated, or perhaps totally something else. What if the homeland that had all the records was destroyed? And the only people that were left were the seafaring culture that was already out on the oceans. And they came back to a homeland that was um, that was destroyed. They would be, as you just said so eloquently, they'd be interested in survival. And so all they would carry with them would be the physical stories. Uh, and when they went out to the the other people who were probably living in uh, in the Stone Age, uh, and they tried to uh, educate these people, and they tried to bring them up and tell them these stories. Um, that's where the stories began, perhaps. Uh, there was no physical reality. All they had left was their stories. Well, that could be the case. And here's the biggest of the primordial 
questions, at least for me. Where do we come from? <sighs> oh, boy. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. Uh, uh, there's a lot of different evidence that I talked about in ancient gods um, where we come from. One way is popular to say that we were we were seeded from outer space. Uh, how did DNA all of a sudden just show up? For for a, a full DNA molecule to be um, suddenly able to reproduce itself and reproduce the DNA in another molecule, in another uh, cell that would be able to um, mimic its parent, so many things would have to fall on that. I, I forgot which... Uh, which writer had said it would be equivalent of a, um, um, a tornado going through a airplane junkyard and coming out with a perfectly made 747 on the other side. Um, so that's one good possibility that perhaps we receded from outer space. The only, my only problem with that is that just kind of kicks the can down the road. Where did the seed come from that seeded us? You know what I mean? So I think we have to go back to the beginning. And the only feeling that, the only thing that I can be happy with, and this is my own personal opinion, I don't expect anybody else necessarily to go along with this, is that I, I love what Irvin Laszlo has said about the Akashic record, the Akashic field. In my new book, Supernatural Gods, uh, which is coming out on the 1st of September, here I threw in a little plug to talk about human hubris. Great. Um, in, I deal with this question, it's about a 500-page book, and this is the basis of the whole the whole book. I can't help but think, um, without sounding, I, I hope I can make this sound spiritual rather than religious, because religious has such a bad connotation with so many folks. I can't help but feel that somehow the universe has intended humanity, um, and that in this whole idea of the Akashic record, which is an informed field that is in formation, um, we are, so to speak, the, the body, the hands and the feet, the flesh and bone of a consciousness. And I fully believe that this consciousness, uh, this, this flesh and bone has evolved through processes which we can understand. But I can't help but think that somehow we came from consciousness or from, I like to say, just say, simply say, Akasha. And that we are returning to Akasha, but when we do return, when we do leave these bodies after one lifetime, after perhaps many lifetimes, perhaps after many universes, um, uh, not just this universe. Maybe this wasn't even the first universe. Uh, there probably, and maybe it wasn't the first at this time. And maybe there are other universes within uh, a micromillimeter of us that we just don't experience because we live on this side of the Higgs field and they're on the other side. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, we have developed within this particular universe with certain limitations and a lot of possibilities. And perhaps there are other universes closer than we can possibly imagine that have other um, limitations and other possibilities. But I like to think that we've all somehow come from this same source, the great mystery. 
in Hinduism, they call it Brahman. Brahman is that place where uh, language cannot go. Language uh, cannot soil Brahma. Uh, it is beyond our thought. I, I had a, when I was teaching comparative religion in college in Massachusetts, uh, when I was first teaching Hinduism, this is back in the 70s, I was first teaching Hinduism, and it was the, of all the religions that I was teaching in this course, that was one I was least familiar with, but I was very fortunate. I had a good friend who uh, was uh, practicing uh, in uh, Hinduism, and he would go into his shop in the morning and light his candles and make his offerings and say his prayers. And so I went into him, and uh, one morning, on the afternoon of the, I was going to talk about Hinduism, and I was going to say, listen, I have to talk about Brahman, Brahman and Atman today. And he looked at me and smiled in his wonderful smile and said, very difficult, very difficult. I said, yes. But I said, I want to run it by you to make sure I got it right. So I would carefully put out the whole idea of Brahman and how you couldn't talk about Brahman. And Brahman was beyond speech and we couldn't understand. And we had to simply intuit Brahman. And he looked and I said, now, do I have it right? And he looked at me and he smiled, his big Cheshire cat smile and nodded his head up and down and said, no. <laughs> and he said, you you can't, but you have to because it's a class, so do the best you can. So I tried. Well, I guess I must have done well because when it came time for the final exam, not even realizing what I was doing, I had a five-point question uh, in one short sentence describe the Hindu concept of Brahman. And one of my students, one of my best students, handed in a perfectly blank sheet of paper for that particular question. And when I handed it back, of course, I had to knock down five points. So it was blank. I handed it back to him. And he he was sitting in the back door. He says, Professor Willis, did anybody else answer the question about Brockman? And I said, well, Paul, they at least tried, you know. And, and he said to me, you're telling me I'm the only one that got it right. And I had to give him five points for handing in a blank question because he was the only one who understood it. So that was the idea. But the Hindu concept of Brockman from where we all come has a wonderful uh, uh, other side to it. The other side of the coin is that the Hindus also have the concept of Atman. And in English, Atman only translates, uh, the only word that comes close to translating it is the word English word soul. And it is within each and every single one of us. And the wonderful, wonderful aspect of Hinduism that I like above all else is that when we talk about Brahman, the unknowable, and Atman within each one of us. In the Sanskrit, they say, in English this is, rather, thou art that. The unknowable source from whence we came is also within us. And if we can get in touch with that, I don't think we can ever explain where we came from, but we can begin to intuit it. And I think when we begin to intuit it, then and only then can we really know the peace that passes all understanding. We'll keep discussing the primordial questions, but let me just read this excerpt from your book. It, it resonated with me. You say, quote, answers do not drive the evolution of knowledge. The engine that propels us forward lies in questions. When we ask questions, we are moved to seek our seek out truths that are hidden, tantalizingly close. It would seem in the mist shrouding the eyes of our intellect, we want to know. We want to learn. We want to understand. So we ask questions, and the journey begins. We stop standing still. We begin to move forward, unquote. That is so true, Jim. So many people are happy 
standing still with answers. This is why this very radio program exists. The only way to find the truth is by asking questions. But it seems society these days frowns upon people who ask questions, almost as if we have become the new subversives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. the society majors in answers and answers that you can fit on a bumper sticker. Right. And the most important answers don't fit on a bumper sticker. Now, so I'll keep asking you the primordial questions. Who are Wonderful. we? Who are our <laughs> ancestral parents? What made them tick? Who is the world? Why is the world the way it is? What and who came before us? Lots of questions. There's one. <laughs> Boy, um, Mel, you're, you're, you're really asking the right questions. I, I wish I had an answer. You know, I don't know. I think probably I'll be spending the rest of my life trying to find that out. Well, that's what drives you, isn't it? Yeah. I didn't I, expect I, an answer I, from you, really. I, I know that in, in, in some ways they must have been very much like us, uh, but in other ways they had to be totally different than us, too. Um, once again, I love to go to the religious texts and read, for instance, about... Um, the biblical themes of, of um, extra-dimensional or uh, uh, creatures, uh, the Bible usually calls them angels. I love to find out how they're described, because people were describing something that was totally outside their own opinion. And yet, I, I find these descriptions in some ways to be totally lacking, and yet, I had an example just this afternoon uh, in my meditation time, this afternoon, um, I, I don't know how personal you want me to get here, but as much um, as you'd like to go, I, I was, uh, I have been going through a, a, a kind of a, uh, a cold time, a flat time, uh, because I have just got back from, uh, I did a presentation up in New York, um, for the, uh, American Society of Dowsers. Uh, on dowsing in quantum physics and of course dowsing, dowsing in quantum reality and of course that took a tremendous amount of left brain stuff you know to prepare all that at the same time uh, i just finished up a couple of oh, a month ago or so my my uh, my latest book supernatural gods the one that's coming out in september and that took a tremendous amount of stick to the computer and write do the research and at the same time uh, my daughter's moving up to live out here in the woods with us. She's going to move in next door and watch her folks as they get old and watch over us a little bit. And uh, I've been building her a house. And, of course, that takes a tremendous amount of nuts and bolts and hammering nails. So I've been, for the last year, just totally in the left brain of my head. And with very few exceptions, uh, I haven't had any out-of-body experiences for a long while or anything like that. This afternoon, I knew that I wanted to kind of get my head into what we were going to be talking about. And so I had a meditation period, and uh, the first half hour, to be honest, it, it was a total dud. But then something happened that lasted only for three or four wonderful, special minutes, um, where I was very conscious of being in touch, uh, psychically, mentally, out of body, I, I can't even tell you, with an entity that I had never experienced before, and it was wonderful. Um, as a matter of fact, it was the entity that <laughs> the last thing the entity said was, I'm the one who moves the sticks. 
And what that meant to me was that when I douse uh, in quantum reality, my dowsing rods, which the entity interpreted as sticks, if I was just going to make it up, I would have said rods, mm-hmm. uh, this, the rod, dowsing rods that I had in my hand, I have been conscious of, of um, having yes or no answers from something somewhere, and that was part of the presentation that I did. When I got out of that meditation, uh, and I immediately had to grab a piece of paper and write down some of the things that I had heard and seen and tried to get a description, I was amazed at how my description was just as inadequate as the uh, description, for instance, that Isaiah gives about going to the uh, going to heaven and seeing the angels and the angelic hosts uh, sending him forth on a mission. It was just as um, impossible to understand as Ezekiel when he had the entity of uh, the medium on the river, or Elijah, or and Elisha when Elijah was taken up to heaven in the fiery chariot. And I've often thought, why couldn't these people have given a better description? And now here. Only this afternoon, I'm looking at my own description, which just seems just as inadequate as theirs, and I realize words just simply are not sufficient. So, I guess uh, it's 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 very difficult when we start to say, where did we come from? Who were we? Um, I'm not sure we can ever find out, and if we do find out, I think it's going to be in a, in a manner that's going to be very, very difficult to communicate. I have a, a, shaman, a couple of uh, shaman friends of mine who love to say, I'm not sure I can get it exactly for them, but when they go on a shamanic journey, they travel to a place where language is insufficient, and then they come back and describe it in a place where language is inadequate. And that's about the closest I can come, I guess. That's very interesting, because as you're, as you're explaining, I was thinking that when you look at all the megalithic structures around the world, and there are pyramids that are being found as of today. There are mm-hmm. things that are being found and mounds and this and that all over the world. And mm-hmm. many of them share many architectural commonalities. So it makes you wonder if thousands of years ago, Jim, mm-hmm. there was a single language, if there was a language, because mm-hmm. I think, as you said, maybe the knowledge you know, between people and the Akashic record, there was another way to access information. I mean, there are verses in the Bible where they talk that humans used to be able to communicate with animals. Yeah. And I don't think that we're barking at the dog or, or meowing at the cat. I think it's more of a mental. Oh, and I then think so too. something yeah. happened after the cataclysm that the unity, call it unity consciousness, if you will, the one religion, one mental language, something happened that we lost it, and we were told that we lost it, and now the biggest conspiracy of all is the secret to our own potential, because we're told yes. that, no, you cannot use telekinesis, you cannot use telepath- telepathy, although that got lost, but I wonder if it got lost on purpose, so that yeah. we are separate, so that we're I, not united. Yeah. If, if you look at the first chapter of the Bible and read the Garden of Eden story, uh, and read it as a metaphor rather than his history, You've got human beings, you've got a a picture of unity. Human beings were one with their environment. They were one with each other. They were one with God. And then after the great catastrophe, after they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, evil, they were separated from God. God came looking for them in the 
in the garden and they were hiding. They were separated from each other and they had to wear skins because they didn't want to uh, show their nakedness to one another. They were separated from their environment because the man had to now go out and till the lake. But what was the reason given? If they, now that they are separate, if they eat of the tree of life, they will be as gods. Wow. Uh, where did that come from? Where did that idea come If we could restore unity, in other words, we would be as gods. I think that's our destiny. I think um, that's, the, that's the secret right there. Yeah. It's, it's on purpose that they're keeping us divided. And maybe, mm -hmm. just maybe, languages... Uh, demarcation zones. And I'm not talking about a one world government here, folks, but I think yeah. in the past, all these cultures were together. I mean, you're talking about the Vikings, the Phoenicians, the Libyans, name and seafaring civilizations that made it all the way here. Mm -hmm. Yet we give credit to the quote unquote, the main man, Christopher yeah. Columbus, right? Who, who never did make it here. Exactly. <laughs> he only made it as far as the Caribbean. Right. But we, I somehow think we get the idea that Christopher Columbus sailed into Boston Harbor. I, I you know, it, it's just, it's just crazy. Our total lack of American history. Uh, yesterday, I noticed that the History Channel, I think, I think it was the History Channel, maybe it was the Discovery Channel, had that uh, long series they did called "The Story of Us." And uh, I've, I'd never seen the whole story, so I wanted to watch it, especially the first part. And I can't believe that uh, in the first 20 minutes. They covered the entire history of America before Columbus. Took them 20 minutes. Took them the rest of the day to cover the rest of it. All I can say is, wow, are we leaving a lot out? Yeah. Not only that, but we call it the discovery of yeah. America. If there were people here, is that a discovery? Yeah, ex exactly. And 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 now uh, the evidence seems to be showing, even within the last few weeks, that people are here for a whole lot longer than the uh, 12 or 13 years, thousand years we give them credit for. Yeah. Uh, ancient, ancient land, and yet we're just beginning to acknowledge that that may be the case. We live here uh, in South Carolina, just above a, an archaeological site called the Topper Site, which is on the Savannah River, which has set archaeology back uh, right on its heels because there is uh, uh, evidence of stone-worked uh, debitage that goes back, uh, dated independently by many different trustworthy sources. That goes that the, the, the soil samples that it's found in go back forty thousand to fifty thousand years. Um, and of course, when that happened, as one uh, newspaper article said, in that case, the Topper site instantly became the latest, um, the, the oldest human uh, occupied site in North America. Well, now there are even more. They're even uh, now that that cat's out of the bag. People are finding sites to go back even older in in other parts of the Americas, uh, way back. So, I think we're looking at a very ancient history here. If we just open our eyes and look at it, why is there a conspiracy of silence? I have my suspicions, but I like to hear yours. I think there are always um, psychologists always tell us that there are many reasons for anything happening, but I think I know some of them. Uh, one of them, I'm sad to say, is I was guilty of it myself for a long time. When you teach in the classroom and you teach the same course, um, sometimes you're teaching the same course two or three times in a semester, and you're teaching it two semesters out of the year, 
and then you teach it the next year and the next year and you're doing the same things over and over again. You've got your lesson plans. You've got your textbook. Oh, it's just so much easier not to have to worry about changing anything and, you know, just go, go along with it and don't rock the boat. And after a while you'll learn. Um, if you bring up certain subjects, then certain students are going to, uh, uh, ask questions and then you've got to go in and then you've got to, you got to look up the new research and all this kind of stuff and it it just becomes a, a a laziness that you just you don't want to get outside you think you know it all and that's where hubris comes into it too you think i've been teaching this a long time kid and you're just sitting here in my classroom and asking questions you know i'm the expert here it is spew it out write it down i'll give you a test on it and give you your mark i hate that that i could have ever been like that and I don't, I like to think that perhaps I wasn't as bad as I'm saying, but I know there is that tendency just to rely on what you've done before. So that's part of it. I think there's a, a, a deeper, a darker reason. And that's that power struggle we were talking about before. There's a conspiracy of silence because information is power. Um, why does the government, for instance, need to keep wraps on uh, UFOs. They're unidentified flying objects. The idea is they're unidentified. Nobody knows what they are. Why is it so dangerous for people to know about this kind of thing? Uh, the fact that they keep it under wraps and keep it uh, classified information and all this kind of stuff, all it does is make the situation worse. It makes people more curious, not less. And yet there is that feeling of power. I know it, you don't. So I'm in charge. I think that's probably another reason for the conspiracy of silence. And I think there's also an egotistical idea. And that's that once you've written a book, like many professors have, you know, publish or perish culture that we're in, once you've written a book, you don't like to say, oh, sorry, I was wrong. Um, when I wrote uh, Ancient Gods and when I read about the history of India uh, in Ancient Gods, I actually had to apologize to some of my students because what I had taught them was just flat out wrong and new information came up and we have to be open to that. But if you're a professor who's struggling to hang on until he retires and don't want your, your, uh, your, your book to be, you know, swept under the thing and say he was wrong, that's, that's an ego thing going on. So between laziness and hubris and ego and the power struggle, I guess those are a couple of good reasons why the conspiracy of silence is there. I'm going to have to point the finger at me here today. I'm going to take some blame, and I'll confess, because I read your bio, and my expectations, and I have the utmost respect for any pastor or preacher, but I thought, okay, <laughs> you may be coming with one set of perspectives here, and being a professor, you have a second you know, academia behind you, and I had some expectations, but after reading the book, I realized you put that aside and you are a real truth seeker. You move with the evidence, and you have changed some of your posture, and that's exactly what a real truth seeker should do. Take the beliefs out of it and move with the evidence and find the truth that way. So my respects for that. Well, thank you. Um, this is the quest that we've had since I retired. Uh, I retired a little bit early. Um, I retired at age 62, I guess it was. Yeah, it's been eight years now. Uh, well, I'm 71 now. I retired in, at age 62, and we deliberately moved up here to the woods of South Carolina. We had an agenda. Uh, our only agenda was that all my life, 
I have been preaching about God. Uh, I have been a lecturer. I've been on the outside. I've been an academic. And very rarely in my life, with a couple of notable exceptions, have I really experienced the holy? Have I really experienced spirit? Have I really experienced God? Although, to be honest, I have a confession out of me. I have a hard time using that word God because the, the, the word itself is just loaded with so much baggage that when I say God, I know what I mean, but most people don't know what I mean when I say God, and it turns them off. But I came out here deliberately with one thought in mind, and that's that we came out here to the woods. We had to build the road back to where our house is. Uh, we had to build a house ourselves. We came out here in the woods with one agenda, and that's that I wanted to experience the other side. I wanted to experience God. Uh, I even had a Bible verse in my mind, that wonderful verse from the Old Testament where uh, Jacob is uh, going back to meet his brother Esau for the first time, and he's worried, and he can't sleep the night before, and so he's pacing up and down in the moonlight, and there he meets a uh, an angelic figure who he later discovers is a theophany, is God in the flesh. And the story is that they wrestled all night, Jacob wrestling with God. And he finally said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And uh, that that verse was forward in my head when I came out here and moved into the woods in South Carolina. I said, I will not let you go until you bless me. I wanted to experience the reality of it. 24-7, God, you and me, no books. No, I mean, well, the books that I read, I mean, no, uh, no dogma, no doctrine, no church structure, you and me. And lo and behold, um, God answered my challenge <laughs> and came to me totally outside of my tradition in a form that would have been very familiar to um, many of the early shaman and the shamanistic tr- tradition. That was how I experienced the other side. That's how I experienced reality. And that's how I got into dowsing. And that's how I got into meditation. And that began the out-of-body experiences and all the rest. Strangely enough, though, a couple of years ago, uh, just about exactly two years ago now, I was asked to go to Cornwall in England and uh, do a presentation for a group called the Parallel Community um, about world, the, the basis and, and the beginnings of world religion. So I went over there, and while I was in England, my only was that we had a wonderful, wonderful time with the people there in Cornwall. But while I was in England, I wanted to go back to this little town called Fanny Compton, where my ancestors used to preach. They were ministers in the Church of England way, way, way back. And so I managed to uh, get the town historian to let me into this little church in Fanny Compton. And it was very uh, wonderful to be able to see the name Willis on the plaque of one of the former pastors who was back in the 1600s. And I stood in the pulpit and I looked over on the side in the same church that he preached in, the same pulpit that he stood in, and there was a, um, a stained glass window that I'd never seen this subject before, but it was a stained glass window portraying Jacob wrestling with God and saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. I couldn't believe it that now generations later, the great, 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 whatever grandson came into the woods to retire with that very picture in his mind, that very agenda, spiritual agenda. And I wonder if my great, great ancestor um, would have been somehow proud, even though my experience has definitely not been Church of England. (laughs) 
But you know, OBE, dowsing, meditation, yoga, you know, the rest of them are considered modalities of the devil by some very dogmatic and overzealous people. So obviously you have transitioned or, or transmuted to something new that allows you to be one with God, if you will. But we have to take a one and only intermission, and we have so much more when we return. Jim, Ancient Gods, Lost Histories, Hidden Truths, and the Conspiracy of Silence is the title of the, your new book. How can people buy it? Uh, they can find it through the uh, the publisher is Visible Ink, uh, Visible Ink Press, or Amazon, of course, or Barnes and Noble. I understand even Target is carrying it. Uh, it's all over the internet. If, if you just want to type in uh, Google in uh, Jim Willis Ancient Gods, you'll find about four pages of uh, outlets. Or and your and local reviews. bookstore. <laughs> A local bookstore can get it. Anybody can get it. Yep, that's for sure. Which is a dime breed. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Jim Willis and so much more when we return. This is Mel Famergus. I'll see you in the member section. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening to part one of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, head on over to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You don't want to miss the rest. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store where you can find great products like pure organic sulfur, rebounders, turmeric, and other great supplements. Thank you.